Buffalo, and welcome to Security All In. This is Sam Curry. This is the show where sometimes we talk a little bit about risk. Sometimes we use a poker motif to describe security. But really what we're interested in is when did people go all in on security and how, or when did security maybe go all in on them? And I'm joined today by a very good friend and colleague of mine, Tatu Ulonen. Tatu, welcome to Security All In. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I guess I'm a bit more on the technical side as the security people go. Well, that's good. This is at the heart of it, right? Our audience is pretty much everyone. And and full disclosure, you and I have known each other for several years, but I was actually on the board of SSH Communications with you and Anne-Marie Zettelmeyer, who's also been on the show for two years. So we know each other and we've, we've worked together in the past, although not as much as I would have liked. And I think we can fix that in the future a bit. So maybe we should start with uh, what you're most famous for, which is the SSH protocol. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about how that idea happened and when, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear. So how did SSH come to be and how did it come to be such a huge part of everything we do? Yeah, so it happened back in 95. I was a database researcher and entrepreneur, and there was a hacking incident in the Finnish university network where someone installed a password sniffer on our backbone network. And when it was found, there were thousands of usernames and passwords, including some from my company. And uh, that's basically where I first really started thinking, what could I do to be able to securely log in over the network between my home, the university, and my office? And then I started reading up on cryptography, started learning network programming, and uh, basically wanted to build something for myself that I would like to use day to day. And three months later, SSH 1.0 came out. And there was no turning back at that point. How did it really, uh, the word viral is, is too soon to use probably in that context, but how and why do you think it became so ubiquitous? Um, what happened after 1.0 that made it so that SSH is effectively everywhere in the world today? Yeah, I guess you could say viral, even though that term wasn't really used at that time. Mm. But password sniffing was maybe the biggest security problem on the internet at that time. Sniffers were discovered every week. There were big scandals. And uh, this basically protected your passwords, both from passive listening and from active attacks and made it in a way that was easy to use. I think the ease of use was the critical factor for its success. Then it got some interested people from news group and mailing lists where I kind of announced it. And I'm estimating that by the end of the year, so in about six months, I'm estimating maybe 20,000 users. And I was getting 150 emails per day from people needing support or so on. So is that, is that what prompted you to found the company, SSH, or did that come later? So SSH was first released in July, and yep. I founded a company around it in December, so about six months later. And as I said, I was getting 150 emails per day from people needing support. I got requests from several universities wanting to buy commercial support, companies wanting to start reselling it. And uh, I started understanding that if I want larger companies to adopt it, it just wasn't possible as free software at that time. It needed someone to support it. And that's how I started the company. 
But that wasn't your first company, right? You had had companies before that. Was it your first security company? It was my first security company. My first company was actually in information retrieval. My second company was in embedded databases for phone exchanges and so on. And as I say, it was my third company. When did you first get the security bug? You mentioned you know you had this idea for effectively being able to do things remotely without exposing the password, which is brilliant. But then you started looking to crypto, you said. Was that your first exposure to security, or, or did you have some exposure before that? I had some exposure. So I'd done device driver programming, compilers, assembly language programming, already in high school back in the 80s. So I kind of knew how the technology works underneath. And uh, in my freshman year in college, I did a little bit of hacking and then told the sysadmins that there's this way to get root on your system. So I kind of was familiar with it. I, I never did any hacking of external systems, but I kind of understood how things work. So that was my background. But I had no background in encryption and actually had no background in network programming when I started working on SSH. And it all came after that. So at some point between, in July of that year, you came up with the protocol in December, the company took shape. And at some point after that, you probably said, wait a minute, you know, you start learning networking and, and you've got the crypto background. You probably turned around and said, I'm a security person. Did that happen right after or did it take a while before you or do you even now identify as a security person in your heart of hearts? I've been doing security for the most of the last 25 years. But I guess I still identify as, as a computer scientist. I understand systems, I understand system administration. But by heart, I do technology, I do programming, I do various kinds of computational systems from compilers to databases to machine learning and security, of course. But in some way, I don't really see security as isolated or even that different, even though there are aspects of security that are much more process-oriented or there are protocols and technologies around identities and protocols. But still, it's fundamental. It's computation like any other computation. That makes sense. And that is in itself applied mathematics and the rigor that goes with it. I, I understand you're doing a PhD now. What was the decision like to go back and do it, if I've got that right? And how is it going? Yes. Yeah, so my PhD work is actually in compu- more, more like computational linguistics and artificial intelligence. And that's another one of my long-term interests. I actually got interested in that field already, already in elementary school. Mm. And I almost did my master's thesis on, on language learning by computers, but then basically got pulled into security. I did computational linguistics and machine learning for two or three years in between, but otherwise, for the last 25 years, I've been doing security. And I'm going to keep do- doing security, but I just felt that I wanted to also do something else for a change, and it's really refreshing. And you've had a history, you speak multiple languages as well. I think you, I know you speak Finnish and English, but I think you also speak Swedish and German. Yeah. Are languages a passion or is that just a tool for you? And does it play into your computational linguistics at all? I wasn't at all interested in languages in, in high school. I mean, they weren't too bad, but I guess 
language as a phenomenon is interesting. Mm. It's understanding how language works and how meanings conveyed that interests me, or how meanings are expressed, or what the underlying meanings are, rather than actually learning a particular language. That makes sense. So now you're doing the computational linguistics PhD. I do know as well that you have a few hobbies outside the office. And I mention them because I think I think our listeners like to know the whole person and get a picture for it. If I if memory serves, you you have a background in martial arts, and I believe you're a big dancer. Is that did I have those right? Yeah, that's correct. So I got interested in dancing in the early nineties, I guess, kind of in college, and have been doing that ever since. Sort of on and off, never too seriously. Just social language, uh, social dance, dancing, sometimes taking a class and just enjoying. It's just something different and relaxing and kind of social interaction. And I guess martial arts, it's just you need to do something to stay in shape. And I kind of find that intriguing as well. It's, there's also that interaction and uh, it really is sort of a science and art to it. I've never done it too seriously, and it's been sort of on and off, and I haven't actually done any martial arts in the last two or three years now. But it's been another long-term kind of hobby. It's interesting. Uh, the company, of course, that I was on the board of and, and that you founded is SSH Communications. And I think the assumption by many is that SSH is the operative part of that. It might be the communications part. You know, you, you worked on a protocol to make communications more secure, you're fascinated with linguistics and carrying of meaning. And even the, the martial arts and the dancing seem to have this theme of and the other forms of communication, physical in this case. Am I reaching too far or does this resonate? Yes and no. Hmm. SSH as a protocol enabled communication. It enabled us to use something remotely in a safe way. Before that, we had Telnet, we had R-login, but mm-hmm. you couldn't have used them today. They were just too vulnerable. So you needed to secure them in order to be able to manage data centers remotely. Or you couldn't have cloud servers if you couldn't manage them securely. Of course, some other protocol would have evolved. But you needed something to manage those securely. And uh, it's that communication that it enables that makes it meaningful. Yeah, it has to be... Yeah, there's, there's more to it, and, and that makes sense. Uh, I know that you read a lot of technical specifications, and you and I did a fireside chat a while ago. It must be, what, three years ago now? And uh, your preparation, I'm inferring that you turned up, you wanted to be an expert before you sat in front of an audience to really have a perspective. I might be reading too much into it, but I know that you consumed a lot of technical material in preparation for that chat. Is that characteristic? Are you, you know, use the time to get deep in a subject, even at the beginning of this podcast here, you said that you were very technical. Do you feel that need for the foundational when you are addressing an audience or or communicating with someone? Is that part of how you do things, Tatu? Yes, I sort of like to understand the underlying technology, not always all the details, but kind of how things work, how they interact, what's important about them. How do they, if it's security, how do they identify the entities? How do they authenticate? How do they authorize? How do they protect? And uh, 
I think it's important to understand that because attacks in security can be from any layer in the system or from mm. sort of any angle. And you sort of have to understand that the different angles are covered. And uh, since I've been doing technology all my life, for me, it's easy to absorb a technical document. I basically browse through it and I have some idea about the main design choices and so on. And uh, I like to be prepared. I like to go deep. And I think if you have the background and the aptitude for learning technical things, I think that's a very good way to go in security. I actually yeah. would say to new people in the field that learn the technology, not just the process, but also learn the te- underlying technology. My sense in having been in many meetings with you is that you're usually in a receiving mode. And then I see you get an intricacy and you, it's almost like a forming of a crystal. And then it spreads and then suddenly you're present with a working model. So my, my sense has always been that, that behind sometimes when you're in this observer mode that you're building a mental model and that you need to take it down deep in one place to be able to come back and say, now I have mastery over the domain. If I'm inferring too much, please tell me. But it's this intense internalization, and, and, and you're one of the best listeners I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And I hope that resonates with you. But uh, I've seen you on technical matters, I've seen you in social, and I've seen you in business. And, and it seems to be this theme of deep understanding is needed before deep communication. Do you feel that way? Well, thanks. I definitely take it as a compliment. Sometimes I feel I interrupt people too too quickly to express my views. But I think it's good to try to understand the kind of issue before taking a position. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit and say we haven't discussed it, but I know that you... You recently moved back to Finland. I know that, that you like to read uh, fiction as well as nonfiction. And am I out of my depth saying that I suspect you're a science fiction reader as I am? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so I definitely read science fiction, probably 100 books per year. But there are months that I read a lot and there are months that I don't read at all. One of those things when you want to turn your brain off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you been doing more or less, though, with the recent quarantine? Has it been a chance to read, or has it been harder to do? I've not read much. I've actually used the opportunity by writing code and learning new things, building new stuff. It's hard when so many things call on us. Uh, I do a lot of reading on airplanes, but then I have to remind myself, you're also doing a PhD, and you're also still developing. Now, I, I know that you said computational linguistics, but I also know you have a passion for AI. One of the the last chances we had to connect on something, and I think we failed on this one, was to discuss uh, some AI and some uh, applied machine learning in particular. Have you advanced anything in that phase, and are you able to, to bring coding to your current work? I've been, the code I've been writing recently actually relates to machine learning. For me, computational linguistics and uh, machine learning and AI are all kind of intertwined so it's all different angles to the same problem. That makes sense to me. We don't have very much time, so I'm going to ask uh, one last question, or maybe we'll one last discussion area, Tatu, which is um, 
imagine somebody today who's like you were in high school and lots of different, uh, or, or a man or woman, uh, lots of different interests, lots of lots of pulling at us and our attention. And someone's thinking, is cyber for me? Or maybe there's a, an intractable problem I really wish I could solve. Do you have any advice for that person? Do you have any, somebody coming up through the ranks in today's world that you would give some advice to? Well, I think computation is still an interesting field. I would definitely recommend something in science and technology. And uh, I think computation is an interesting, exciting field where we are still going to see a lot of advances coming in the, in the coming decades. There are multiple angles where those might come from. Artificial intelligence is just one of them. Quantum computation could be another. There could be totally new computational paradigms, totally new interfaces, totally new kinds of integration with people. So I think it's an exciting field and also in how that go- that's going to interface with people and society. Excellent. So there's a lot of research, entrepreneurial opportunity, academic opportunity, and frankly, innovation, right? To actually do things, make them happen. Yeah, I like that. Well, Tatu, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. And it has been a pleasure working with you over the last three years, and I look forward to many more. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. It's been a real pleasure working with you, and I also hope for many more Moyes doing things together. Excellent.